0: Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. It's great to have your company for yet another week. A very special thank you to my new Patreon sponsors, Joe and Daniel. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, just go to patreon.com forward slash Dan Mullins to help keep the show on the road. Wow, what an incredible response to last week's chat with Joe and Savannah Kuro. Thanks for your feedback, your encouragement and support. I really appreciate it. This is a podcast about El Camino de Santiago, the way of St. James. The Camino is a pilgrimage. You could say most people walk it for the adventure of heading out your front door on a long walk in a foreign country, and that alone is worth the journey. But as Savannah Kuro told us last week, and this was a young person's perspective, There are a lot of people on the Camino hoping the pilgrimage helps them deal with some form of malaise. And it's in the freedom of simply walking day after day westward toward the horizon that we find time to contemplate and perhaps find a clarity to clear some of the storm clouds gathering above us. Some people will charge out early in the day to secure a bed in the town they've chosen for the night. Others like Joe and Savannah last week will go long and go slow. Some have all the latest and greatest gear. Others walk in tennis shoes. Some play music from boom boxes. Others prefer to listen to the crunching of the ground beneath their feet, the birdsong or the cowbells. You'll meet pilgrims who have walked from the UK, from Germany, the Netherlands. I met a Polish pilgrim who had walked from Krakow. You'll hear often, it's your Camino. Walk the pilgrimage as you choose, and rightly so. You haven't travelled halfway around the world to be told what to do. You need to find your balance and rhythm to make the most of the opportunity. And you almost owe it to yourself to make the most of the opportunity. If it is some sort of malaise that led you to the Camino, why not make the most of that time for change? I have two quotes from two former US presidents two weeks in a row. John F. Kennedy said, when written in Chinese, the word crisis is composed of two characters. One represents danger and the other represents opportunity. There are plenty who walk the Camino for the pure joy of the environment. Indeed, some of the pictures out of that part of the world this week have been startling with the heat wave and the wildfires. So, what if you wanted your Camino to be completely off the scale? What if you wanted to challenge yourself to conduct a sort of extreme Camino, like winding your way from St. Jean Pierre de Port to Santiago in just 14 days? British pilgrims Danny Nichols, Michael Geary, and Tom Pilling ran from St. John Peterport to Santiago. They're on the line. Welcome, pilgrims.
1: Hello. Hello.
0: (laughs) Now, Danny, I'll start with you. Where did the idea to run the Camino come from?
1: Uh, The blame lies with uh, Michael and Tom, actually. I had nothing to do with coming up with this uh, mad idea Uh, So, yeah, yeah, I'm going to hand over to to Tom and Michael to give you the uh, the background to this.
0: Okay, so Tom, Michael, where did the idea to run the Camino come from?
2: Uh, It actually came from probably back in 2019. I did a challenge to run from London to Paris, which was seven marathons in seven days. And Tom was my one-man support crew. And uh, when we were driving back in the van and we were driving home, he said, I think we sh- I-, I need to do one now. Um, yeah. And Tom had previously walked the Camino twice. So he said, why don't we go run it? And at the time I thought, oh, I don't know, it's a bit far. You know, is it possible? And then we talked about it a little bit more. And then it kind of, we wanted to do it probably 2020 or even 2021. And obviously with the pandemic, we couldn't travel. So it got pushed back to, to this year so yeah that's uh, where it comes from and like Dan said I laid the blame with Tom.
0: <laughs> so Tom let me ask you what was the appeal of the Camino you've if you walked it two times before you ran it it must hold some allure for you?
3: Yeah I th- think um, anybody who's ever done it, it they'll say how special it is and everybody has their time on it and they meet their, their people and it's just time for yourself I suppose and yeah,
0: it was amazing. Yeah. So, Michael, I'll go back to you. You you talked about the fact that you've run from London to Paris. So are all three of you super fit long-distance runners? Is it all part of your lives?
2: Uh, I guess all, all kind of slightly different journeys, really, with different fitness. And I think both me and Dan probably picked it up at a similar time, really, where it was, you know, it became part of our lives probably five or six years ago. And um, it kind of escalated from picking running up again after a long break to going, okay, like let's run 10K, let's do a half marathon, let's do a marathon, let's do some ultras and, you know, it it kind of escalated then into um, the seven marathons and then escalated again to a whole new level with the Camino.
0: Yeah. So let me ask you this, Dan. What did other pilgrims make of you rushing past them?
1: It's, it's, it's mixed emotions, isn't it? Well, mixed feelings when you go past people or where you stop for a minute to uh, eat. Because you, you're on your, your feet for 36 miles a day, 37 miles a day. We're, we're stopping and eating. And the first thing that people say to you is, well, where's your luggage? You know, because yeah. we had somebody taking our luggage for us, picking our luggage up in the morning. We were on the road from 6.30 in the morning till you know, 6, 7 o'clock at night. Um, and we were fortunate to have somebody take our luggage from A to B for us so we didn't have to carry it. So we just had like our ultra, ultra backpacks on yeah. with all our liquids, uh, food, suntan lotion, Tiger Balm, uh, painkillers, all what we needed to get through that day. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes you'd stop, speak to another pilgrim if they were on the road, have a little chat. And the first thing they'd say was, where's your luggage? Where's your luggage? And it was almost like they frowned upon it that you didn't have luggage. And then you'd tell them, well, where have you come from? And you'd go, yeah, St. Jean. Well, when? You're like, three days ago, four days ago. And they're like, no, <laughs> no, no. What, what, how, how have you done that and they're like nobody believes you nobody believes that you've done it uh and then you show them the back of your shirt you've got your sponsor not, not your sponsors but our charity page on the back and you explain uh what you're doing it for and why you're doing it and the, the, i think the respect that you get from people um uh, so it's like yeah you frowned upon at first and then the respect at the end of the conversation it turns around 360 in, in a matter of a minute really um, which is beautiful, and the amount of people that you know we went past along the way uh, that you know ended up sponsoring us as well and sending money a couple of days later to our respective charity page, which was fantastic.
0: Yeah, I want to get to that because that's what it's all about, really. Um, you mm. are, you guys are challenging yourselves, sure, but there's a deeper message to it all. So, so you talked there, um, Danny, about six to six. Like, that's 12 hours of running. So, Michael, you might answer this question. Had you planned it all out? How, how far did you plan to run each day? And did you stick to that plan? Like, was it strategic in, in as much as you knew how far you had to go? Or were you like other pilgrims? Let's just see how the day pans out.
2: No, we we had it mapped out. Um, we have done quite a bit of research into it and um, found some pretty useful Sort of resources online where there was you know pdfs of um the route with the elevations with the different little towns and villages along the way and showed you what sort of amenities were in each place so, so i'd basically mapped each day so that we could finish in a place that had hostels hotels you know bed and breakfast type thing um so we had it pretty much mapped out we we pretty much stuck to it the whole way there was maybe a couple of days where we ended up going slightly further um or then you know where we kind of were able to balance that out and go slightly shorter the next day um but yeah roughly we we pretty much stuck to the plan
0: so tom a lot of the paths now i'm thinking for myself the trail down after aldo de pedron outside of pamplona that that kind of walk down is really difficult terrain walking is difficult terrain Uh, i know i walked with a couple of pilgrims who that was the first time they sort of mentioned to me that they wish they had walking poles because you would have been able to sort of take some of the pressure off your heels and your knees and your and and your ankles how do you cope with the different surfaces if you're running
3: you just got to get on with it, I suppose. You've got to take your time and make sure you're not going to injure yourself and um, go over on your ankles. But you know we all have our injuries at certain points and it hurt. <laughs> but that was a part of it. We had to endure those paths. And, yeah, some, sometimes you welcome different terrain because if you're on a road all day and you're just hitting the, the same pan over and over, it's nice to jump on a gravel path or a stone path where... You have to change your your running gait or yeah, it relieves it as well. But, yeah, I think, I'm going to speak for these two, there's moments when it
0: hurt going downhill. (laughs) Yeah, but how how do you prepare for that? I can imagine that you're in the UK, you're running on roads, perhaps you're running on a bit of grass, but I can't imagine you're running on the kind of surface that you would have experienced coming out of Pamplona. I mean, that's broken rocks and it's really heavy. Um, It's very flat
3: where we are as well. There's no hills to be running around here we you know we've done a few trips to macclesfield forest haven't we and, uh but yeah we i don't think you can prepare for it we just had to be aware that it was going to be like that and it'll be over and then there'll be another bit of path yeah over down the road
0: yeah what about shoes what shoes did you wear danny uh so i had two pairs of shoes
1: i had a pair of uh as, well, two pairs of ASICs trainers, but they were, they were quite big soles, quite foamy. And the reason why I had two is because it takes 24, 48 hours for the foam to kind of go back to the place it originally was oh. uh, when you've been on your feet for so long. So yeah. I was just alternating each
0: day. When you talked earlier about not taking your belongings with you, you had a very small pack with you. You had a support crew then, clearly. Is that support crew also kind of like medical, Michael? Is it? Is it? Are they being able to strap your ankles and work on your your hamstrings and try to give you some respite if you're running twelve hours a day? That's ridiculous.
2: Yeah, it, it, the, the support crew were, were mainly there for, for kind of, you know, like Dan said, to, to transport the rest of our luggage, so our kind of spare kit, spare shoes, you know. Clothes, etc., from from one point to the to the next. um You know, most days they drop in, sort of halfway through, and meet us at lunch, and we could kind of, you know, like the first couple of days it was really wet, so we were able to chuck wet stuff in and, and grab some fresh stuff out of the car. But generally, that was kind of the the way it went. It was kind of they pick stuff up in the morning, we'd be long gone by the time they they got up and got into our room and took our stuff. Um, and and from a medical perspective. Yeah, we put some demands on them to go and stock us up with, you know, ibuprofen or um, Tiger Balm or, you know, blister plasters and things like that. But in terms of actual treatment, there was no, we didn't kind of take a a physio with us or anything like that. I mean, we kind of managed that ourselves and we had foam rollers and we attempted, especially the first few days, to do ice baths um, in the evening, which Danny made us endure. <laughs> um and you know we try and sort of stretch and foam roll and yeah um and that was it really
0: Michael tell me something what did you find most challenging
2: um i think it there's so many different factors that make this challenging i think you know the the pure distance itself is is obviously ridiculously challenging. We're talking, you know, 14 ultramarathons in a row. To do one ultramarathon is hard enough. But then you add to that the elevation, you know, you look day one was like six and a half thousand yeah. feet of elevation. And then day two, you're thinking, oh, it's a bit flatter and it's still like three and a half, four thousand feet. So the elevation adds an extra level. I think the terrain you mentioned earlier makes it in places Quite challenging and can make it quite slow to to move. Um, I think for us as well, like the you know, it's the sheer number of days. I think you know we, like I said, you know, I'd done seven days in a row before, but by the time we got to day seven, thinking, wow, we're only halfway through. So you know, the sheer number of days to keep doing that makes it really challenging. And you know, I think we all had different injuries at different points. I I went through. Probably two or three days where I was genuinely close to 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 chucking the towel in, and and I, and I thought I wasn't going to be able to do it. Um, so dealing with pain and, and dealing with injuries, but having to push through and keep going, was, yeah. uh, that was a real challenge.
0: And I'll stay with you then, Michael. What what about? Do all three of you run every step?
2: No, it was a, it was a combination of, of running and, and walking. We kind of agreed before we went out that we knew, you know, there's going to be some big, steep climbs. And, mm-hmm. you know, even if you look at some of the most experienced, you know, even, you know, elite level ultra runners, you know, they don't run every step of the way, um, you know, because it's such a, a drain on energy that actually you can probably walk fairly quickly, pretty much the same speed uphill as you, as you can, you know, running or, or you know, sort of jogging up a hill, you, you can probably take, you know, the same amount of speed and, and use less energy. And it, it gives your running muscles a break as well. Because You know, when you start walking, you're using different muscle groups. So we, we knew that we'd agreed that before we went out. Um, so anything that was flat and down, we tried to run anything that was up, you know, we, we would walk up and right. you know, that was kind of the plan. I'd say the first, the first couple of miles each day
1: uh, <laughs> was so tough. Because you'd 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 wake up in the morning, and that's what I found the toughest. Each morning, uh, getting out of bed, your whole body aching. You'd not slept because you you. I found my my hips were just pounding. My ankle, one of my ankles had swollen up. Uh, blister, I had twelve blisters at one point. Uh, and in the morning, I just wanted out. I just wanted. I didn't want to carry on anymore. And I looked at the other two. Um, and I just thought, well, if they're gonna do it, I've got to do it. Um, obviously, there's there's the the funds that are there as well, so that, that keeps you going. But for that first couple of miles each day, you're walking and just finding your rhythm. And then you're kind of like combating with the pain and you're trying to talk yourself to get through the pain. Like I was arguing with my blisters. I'm not gonna let you stop me, I'm not gonna let you stop me. And then you get to the first like kind of like decline and then you start to move your legs a little bit quicker. And then you start to think, okay, I've got this, I've got this. I can start to run a little bit. And then throughout the day, then you just find yourself running again. But each morning I thought I've not got, I've not got a run in me. I've not even got a walk in me on on day. Was it day eight or nine Gary? When you were in bits, mate, you couldn't even walk to the bathroom. And we, we tried to sit him down and say, listen, it's day nine, you've you've done a fantastic job. If there's going to be risks to injury now, you need to get in the car, have a day in the car. And he was like, I can't, I can't do it. And, you know, the steps were so small at first. And then after a couple of miles, we were like, oh my God, I can't believe you're running, mate. I can't believe you're running.
0: (laughs) It was crazy, crazy. Yeah, Yeah. Wow, what a great story. Danny, I'll stay with you. If I thought I liked the idea of a running Camino, what sort of training regime would I need to reach before I go? Would I need to be running for 12 hours a day?
1: No. So how how do you train for 14 ultra marathons? And the answer is you you can't, you know. I am a, a bit of an ultra runner and I've trained for ultra runs. And they do say, and as part of my training plan, about a month before an event. So I've done like a 50 mile ultra run. And what they do say is that you probably want to get around about 80% of your target, but split over two runs over two days. So I did one weekend before my my 50 miler, I did a 20 miler on a Saturday, 20 miler on a Sunday. Uh, And that's, training for a one-day ultra. They also say, again, this is in the running community, that once you've done an ultra, you need at least two to four weeks to recover. We were getting up the next day and doing another ultra run for 14 days, which is, again, every every time I look back on this, I didn't realise before we did it, but now when I look back on it, it's pretty ridiculous what we did. There's, I don't think there's very many people that have done such a ridiculous thing. So therefore, I don't think there is a way of properly training for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. If I'm on the Camino, I walk about between three and a half to four kilometres an hour. Oh, How fast are you guys running?
2: Probably not. A lot, probably not much quicker. Um,
1: I, I, th- I think we were. I think... If you think about it, we were we were stopping every six miles, weren't we? Yeah. Or uh, you know, you've got it's all about fueling as well. Yeah. So it's all about making sure your energy levels were there, which I think we had at the end of each day because I think we did fuel right. What we, what what? struggle was uh, our our legs, weren't they? they? They were they were they were the problems. So yeah, I don't know what speed. Maybe about. Six kilometres an
0: hour,
2: six point five. Yeah, kilometers. yeah. I don't. I've, I struggle with kilometres. Um, right. dealing minutes <laughs> per mile, but right. I think if you're talking minutes per mile, I'd say over the, you know over the course of the two weeks that like we we probably would average our, our sort of running pace was you know really easy running pace. Obviously, you've got to keep what you can sure. in the tank. We're probably running 11 minute miles.
0: Oh, okay. All right. Right. That's still pretty quick,
2: but not, you know, so not, not quick, you know, we're yeah. kind of, you know, yeah. going to know, going as but steady, you know, slow yeah. and steady. And yeah, that yeah. was part of the training as well. That, and that was, that was a, I think for both me and Dan was, was a bit of an adaptation to, to training to go like, I'm not training for a marathon where I'm pushing, you know, race pace or, or anything. It was like, let's just go slow and steady and, and train slow and steady to get used to it and I think kind of we both benefited from Tom's experience of walking it before and um, you know Tom was kind of saying to us look it's just slow and steady like it's you know part of your training needs to be time on your feet you know so going for a big walk so some days I'd go for a, a 10 mile run but then I'd go out for a two hour walk straight after it right uh, you get in kind of three four hours out on your feet
0: yeah yeah. We have a, a, a famous story in Australia about an ultra marathon runner. His name was Cliff Young. I don't know if you chaps have heard of him. Um, he was a potato farmer from Victoria. And Westfield is the big shopping centre place in Australia, right? They they have the big malls, shopping malls, Westfield. And they decided to host a race between Westfield, Parramatta and Sydney, and Westfield Doncaster in Melbourne. It was 1983. I remember it like it was yesterday. And this potato farmer, who was then 61 years old, his name was Cliff Young, turned up to compete in the ultra marathon, running 875 kilometres in overalls and gumboots. And <laughs> wow. he ran the whole thing non-stop. Wow. Um, right? Yeah. So... Everyone became aware of this fellow after about day two, and the whole country was glued to their televisions. This guy is running in overalls and gumboots overnight. And all the TV crews are, f- you yeah, he's still running. You know, it's on the next night on the news, everyone's in front of the TV. Is this guy still running? Mm-hmm. And he won the race, I think, by 10 hours in the end or something. But he had this thing, wow. yeah. And he 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 ran. I think I I still remember it now. He ran four miles an hour. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So he's doing like fifteen minute miles.
0: Yeah. 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 So that, all those years in, in ago, boots. Yeah, in <laughs> in gum boots, exactly. So Tom, let me That's go back community. to you. It's no, no. It's insane. It's insane. It's mm. it, it's a classic Australian story. There's been movies about him and all sorts of stuff. Tom, I spoke earlier about the Camino's reputation for providing an, an opportunity for pilgrims to do a bit of soul searching, you know, and you'd be aware of that reputation. I'm sure you walked it twice yourself before. Did you experience the same sort of energy or transformation? Did you even have time to to kind of pause and and smell the roses? And I
3: think, well, you, you know, we are traveling slowly um, as runners, but there is something you miss when you're running it. I've, I found anyway. Mm. Uh, you don't have that time to, you know. You might see somebody in the day and have a chat with them, but you know, if you're walking, you you might see that person again or in a couple of days, or you know, you keep on meeting them down the path. But when running, it's a it's a glimpse of people's stories really that you meet and you have a quick chat, and you might not see them again. Yeah. So there is something you missed. I think that's something so special on the Camino is. Meeting the people and f- finding out about other people. So yeah, it was it was different this time. But like you say we we were doing it our own way, like everybody does. But
2: we did it for three great charities. The only people who could keep up with us that we kept that we saw on multiple occasions were people on bikes. Yeah. So we, our, our mate Felipe that that we saw who had ridden from his house in Switzerland and then was riding the commune. and We saw him quite a few times because he was on a bike so he could cover similar mileage but yeah we had there was one night we met her was a scottish lady in the restaurant we were eating in and she said oh we saw you guys this morning She's like, and uh, she said how have you got here like you must be are you doing it on bikes and we're like oh no we're, we're running she said what i came in a car and i've only just got here and we were like yeah okay like she, she sort of looked at us like nah, there's no way you're running. You must be on bikes or in a car. And we're like, uh, nah, we're on foot, promise.
0: That's so uh, great. What about, you talked about blisters. Um, and perhaps, Michael, I'll throw this question to you. Um, if you're walking and you've got to deal with blisters or even shin splints, um, even knee pain, uh, it's often one of those things that you think, well, I don't know if I can keep going. How are you running? with blisters and shin splints and knee pain. Running is an entirely different thing and and much more difficult to get your pace or set your pace to enable you to kind of manage the pain.
2: Yeah, I think the the, the thing with blisters as well is, and I think particularly, I think, you know, I, I had a couple of bad ones. Danny had quite a few bad ones. I think the thing with blisters that people probably overlook sometimes is, if you've got a big blister on, say, your big toe, you will compensate by trying to plant your foot on the outside to take less pressure off the big toe where your, your worst blister might be. But by doing that, there's a knock-on effect onto the next injury or the next pain, um, you know, and you sort of overcompensate And Yeah, we had some some pretty uh, horrific blisters, I think, between all of us. Um I still think Danny had probably the biggest and best ones, um, I, I, pati- particularly the point. one that popped that uh, popped as he took his sock off in the reception of a hotel and a basically burst spreading <laughs> some sort of dew across the floor. <laughs> oh, no. As you can imagine, the, the girl behind the desk kind of looked at us like, what is that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's ghastly. No. Where was that?
2: I have no idea. Probably, (laughs) I don't know, what do you reckon, Danny Day 4, something like
0: that? Yeah, I think it
1: was. I think that was the first blister I'd started to get and it just, I'd not even realised I had a blister. Uh, And yeah, I just remember taking, sliding my, my shoe off as soon as I sat down. And it just went everywhere, it popped, and just went absolutely all over Gosh. the reception. Like, oh, okay. oh
0: no! How ghastly
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was! It was. I, mean, I had blisters under blisters. You know, you pop one, and there was another one there. I've never, I've never had anything like
0: it. It's a wonder you didn't get infected, because the blisters can get pretty toxic pretty quick. Yeah, it it is. It's
1: it's mad. I suppose, (laughs) looking back on it, we got quite lucky then. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All them blisters and we got lucky by not getting infection.
0: Yeah. So, Michael, um, let's go back to you. Um, What about food? I mean, you, you can't eat rubbish if you're running every day for those kind of hours. How hard was it to find what you needed to eat? Um, or were you able to eat whatever the heck you wanted because you were running so far every day?
2: I think it was a bit of both. Um, I think yeah, sometimes it was challenging because, like Danny said earlier, we you know we we were kind of getting up early, and you know the alarm would go off at five thirty, and then we'd be aiming to be out of the door on the way by six thirty latest. You know, so nowhere's open at that time. So you you know you can what we tried to do was buy some stuff the night before that we could eat as soon as we got up before we went out. So, you know, we, we try and grab kind of, uh, you know, and then along the way, we try and grab stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's an element of, yeah, you've got to eat the right stuff. And, but at the same time, you know, I I think we, we were burning like between six and 8,000 calories a day. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of food to put back in. So yeah, I think the biggest challenge was volume. Like, you know, rather than the type of food, like the volume, like to try and put that many calories back in was, was difficult. And, you know, I gave it a real good go. You know, we were eating like donuts for breakfast and croissants and sandwiches and pizzas and all sorts. Like, But when you add it all up, probably still wasn't meeting the calories we were burning
0: how hard is it to run with pizza in your stomach? I, I, I mean, no, no, seriously, seriously. I, I, I kind of think of it like you must be thinking, Oh man, I wish I didn't eat that pizza last night, but you have to kind of feed, you have to kind of feed high carb diet, yeah. don't you? To get the energy out of it to, to, to keep going the next day.
2: Yeah. And I think that's, that's where this is different to a, you know, a one day marathon or a one day ultra where you probably can get by with, you know, energy gels, blocks, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't do that for 14 days. So you you got to eat real food. Um, you know, so, and you've got to be taking on real carbs to, to provide that energy. And I think, you know, I, I kind of experienced that when I did London to Paris, it was I met a girl beforehand who had done 12 marathons in 12 days and the biggest piece of advice she gave me that that stood with me was eat real foods you know and use it in your training so when you're training and you're doing a long run practice eating real food so you get used to you know maybe doing six miles stopping and having a sandwich or you know taking on some real food and then going again so your stomach gets used to it your body gets used to eating real food and then just carrying on yeah um you know, and to be fair, I think sometimes we'd stop for lunch and it wouldn't even touch the sides. So we'd just, keep, and then we'd just carry on.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, Danny, you reached out to me to tell this story and I was fascinated, to be honest. Um, But I want to know now about the charity. How much money did you make? What was the motivation for the charity aspect of the journey? And how did that come up in the conversation between the three of you? Um. <clears throat> Well, yeah, so
1: from a charity perspective, I, I mean, I'll talk about mine, let Michael and Tom talk about uh, their respective charities and why they d- do what they do. But I've been fundraising for a charity called Murdered Abroad since 2018. Um, so I lost a friend of mine. He was uh, shot and killed in Berlin uh, in 2015, September 2015, And then in 2018, I reached out to this particular charity, Murdered Abroad, who help families that have lost people abroad, basically. And they invited me down to a a day that they get everybody together. And uh, I sat there in the room and I I, I said to myself that day, I'm going to try and raise as much money for this charity as possible. Um, So, you know, I went out and did um, a marathon. Uh, Then did another multi-day event. And and every time you have to go one bigger, basically. Uh, And then uh, Gary reached out to me after speaking to a pal of mine uh, and uh, said that he was doing this event. And I was like, well, this fits perfect for me because I want to raise some money for for
0: Murdered Abroad again. Murdered Abroad? You mean there's a charity that offers support because it happens so often?
1: Uh, You'd be surprised. Uh, You know, I sat there in a room with uh, nine families in in Cardiff in 2018. Nine families. Um, Some quite recent. Some murders had taken place 15 years before and they're still going through court cases and investigations, uh, trying to get to the bottom of what what happened. Um, So... Yeah, these people need a lot of support, and it's such a blunt charity. And the reason why they called Murdered Abroad is so hopefully they'll, they'll pop up on on Google when people search Murdered Abroad. You know, it's uh, it's a real glum, hard hitting name for a, a charity. Wow. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Michael, tell us
0: about your charity.
2: Yeah so I actually work for a charity um so I'm head of a charity called City in the Community um which is Manchester City Football Club's official charity yeah. um so obviously I I wanted to you know raise some money for, for the charity I work for as as well as the other two amazing charities that that Dan and Tom chose and specifically the money that that's been raised for City in the Community is going into a program we developed about two years ago called City Thrive, which is all about um, supporting the mental health of young people in Manchester.
0: Tell me about Manchester. I, I'm intrigued. Uh, it's always been the, the north of England has been, and I'm a rugby league fan, so I know about the how rugby league is perceived in, in northern UK. It's a tough place. It's 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 a the, the people up there are battlers. They've they've survived. Is there still that kind of toughness or is there a softening? Why are you talking about a charity that needs to support people in a in a in a community that's always been pretty resilient, pretty strong, pretty tough?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I- I'd say, yeah, there probably is an element of, of resilience and toughness. I think that probably stems back to, you know, the history of, of Manchester as an industrial town and, and city. But um, you know, that like any cities, you know, it's the same in, in London, it's the same in, you know, a lot of major cities around the world. And, you know, even at, we have a um a, a sort of sister club in, in Melbourne, Melbourne City, and they have a community scheme, and it's the same there. You know, these are quite affluent cities with, you know, big property developments and things. But, you know, it's the stuff that you don't see, Um, you know, and Manchester, like any other city, has very affluent areas and, you know, a thriving city centre. But it also has some of the most deprived areas in the whole country, Mm. Um, you know, in terms of deprivation around um, health, physical health, mental health, unemployment, unemployment. Um, you know, drug and alcohol issues, antisocial behaviour. Like, you know, there are a whole range of different factors of that deprivation that that exist. You know, not just in Manchester, but in, in many of the major cities around yeah. the world. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's our responsibility as a as the football club is to you know to support local people, whether they're young, old, with with whatever challenges they are facing. So everything that we do is. Is around improving the physical health, mental health, um, the inclusion of people, breaking down barriers, and and then creating employment opportunities for those people.
0: Yeah, and it's often in those um, communities where the perception is everything's okay, everything's fine, (laughs) I'm tough, I can carry on through, I don't have any issues, everything's fine. That's where the deepest and most heartfelt issues occur they're the people that need the most support. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: Mental health is something that's, you know, mental health affects everybody. And um, particularly off the back of a global pandemic, young people have been affected the most in terms of their mental health, in terms of, Mm -hmm. you know, levels of anxiety or depression or loneliness and a whole range of other mental health issues. So what we're trying to do with this program is raise awareness of mental health and talk to young people you know, give them the tools that they they need to be able to have difficult conversations. Let them know that it's okay to not be okay, and then off the back of that, we also provide clinical support um, for any young people who who need that more um, sort of technical clinical support through our trained
0: uh, mental health advisors. Fantastic. So, Tom, what about your charity? Tell us.
3: Uh, I chose uh, McMillan Cancer Support, and it was. Well, I think we've all had friends and family who've benefited from the support that Millen provide for people with cancer. Um, You know, there's a lot of charities I I couldn't pick, but I I personally found that was one that's helped me and family and friends as well. So, yeah, it was what I chose to do.
0: Has cancer impacted you personally? Uh, Not
3: not. I haven't had cancer, but my friends and family, of course, yeah. And I think it, if, I think it impacts everybody. And if it, it, it hasn't, it, it
2: sure it will do. Yeah, everyone it's, knows someone that yeah. either has had a family member or a friend that's been affected, have not
0: they? No question about that. Okay, gentlemen. One of the key parts of the Camino, and everybody listening right now, if they've walked the Camino or they're planning to walk the Camino, they all know about Cruz de Ferro. So let me go through each of you. Um, Denny, tell me about the cruise to Faro.
1: So, so I'm going to let Michael tell you this. He, you know, he he, he would, would tell it better. But this this was a point where everything just came together. And I just want to add. So the first week that we ran the Camino, we had a support crew of my mum and her boyfriend. So you asked earlier about were they, you know, uh, medics or anything they weren't they were family that came over they were not a professional support crew. in the second week um uh, a gentleman called phil took over as support uh, and it's his son that was murdered in uh, berlin in 2015 so again another beautiful thing to this whole event and another thing that kept us going each day because I know for me, I would, that no matter how much pain I was in, no matter how much physical pain, the mental pain I was going through, I would look at Phil and I'd think the pain that he's going through is nothing compared to what we're going through. Ours will be over in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 days. it will be gone and we'll be healing. He will wake up with a pain every single day that he can't get rid of. Um, so this particular day, this was on day 10, I think it was. Um, Michael, I'm going to let you take over the story as well, because, you know, you had yeah. a poignant moment with um, the music that you were listening to. Tom, you had a moment as well. So I'll let yeah. you come in there.
2: Yeah, I think um, I I've obviously heard about this this point of the of the route from Tom, and then, you know, I'm sure most people who are listening to this have watched The Way um and see and seen you know the the footage of it there and um we actually stopped for some lunch and there was a, a lady who went past that we kind of crossed past with a couple of times throughout the, the morning and she said oh I've, I've got my stone ready for tomorrow so you know in my head i'm thinking oh this this point is coming tomorrow what we didn't realize is she was a normal person who was walking 10 or 12 miles a day and actually that. <laughs> that lunch stop for her was the end of her day. So we then set off after lunch, and I said to these two guys, like, look, you guys crack on. I'm, you know, obviously moving a little bit slower. Um, I'm going to put my headphones in. Didn't really listen to a lot of music along the way, but I said, I'm going to put my headphones in. I'm just going to zone out for a bit. So I put some, I've just put a random Spotify playlist on, on, on Shuffle, started running. And a couple of minutes later, we're on a little footpath. And as I turned the corner, I saw it. I saw the the huge sort of mountain of stones, and Tom and Danny stood at the top. And on my playlist, just before I turned the corner, so I hadn't actually seen the the, the stones at this point, was a song that came on. It's a, a stereophonic song called "Maybe Tomorrow," oh. which quite poignant for me, because I actually lost one of my best friends in 2007 and unfortunately passed away through leukemia and his favorite song. And unfortunately also the song he chose himself for his funeral was maybe tomorrow. So in my backpack, I have a, a stone at this point that I picked up on day one and I'd written my, my message on there, which was maybe tomorrow we'll find our way home. And, no. and that song, song came just on. came on. Yeah. It came on probably. No. 20 seconds before I turn the corner and see these guys up there and I ran up to the top and Tom's sat down and he's having you know a quiet moment to himself and I said no you're not going to believe this and I took my headphone out and put it to his ear and then I had my stone in my hand and he's just looked at me like no way and I was just like it you couldn't write it it's you know it's crazy it gave me goosebumps um
1: it it was it was magical wasn't it because tom tom had had a moment as well uh i'd got emotional at that particular point and as you'd rocked up as well we we hadn't planned on stopping here at this particular point we didn't know we were all going to be stopping and then and as we were all having this moment phil luke's dad Drove up at that exact moment. So it's everything just came together at this one
0: moment. It, it was unbelievable. Gosh, that's just such a great story. Tom, um, tell him about the. Come 22. on, Tom. Uh, yeah. Come on, Tom. Um, you, 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 I mean, just, I'm blown away, but come <laughs> on.
3: <laughs> I've always had, well, for, for years I've had this thing with the number 22. I see it, uh, you know, people have this, and they see it certain numbers or things that just catch the eye. But this number 20 is, is really important to me, really. It kind of brings me back to the universe somehow, I don't know. But I took some of my dad's ashes with me on the Camino um, and I planned to, to take some there and uh, spread, spread some ashes up there. And as I'd done that and I'd sat down and I was having my moment, I looked down to my feet and there was a tiny, when I say a tiny rock, it was probably the size of a, Oh, it's about a centimeter. Yeah, five penny piece, wasn't it? It was yeah. a tiny, tiny little white rock with the number twenty-two written under my foot.
2: Yeah, and I got up there and I was like, "Oh, Tommy, is that your stone?" Like assuming that he'd written a twenty-two on one because that's, you know, I've known that that's Tommy's number and sees it everywhere and stuff. And he's like, "No, I've got my stone in my pocket. Look!" And he pulled his stone out where he'd written a message on it at home before we even left England. And I'm like, mate, look down by your foot, and this is this
0: little stone with a 22 on it, and I was just like, no way! Wow! So, why is 22 so important to you, Tom?
3: I don't, I don't know. It's just one of these things that
1: catches, caught my eye, and yeah. I,
0: How interesting! Can't
1: can't
0: All we had was
1: Tommy pointing out 22 again. This is going to be a good day. 22 again, 22. You saw, we saw it everywhere, didn't we? Yeah.
0: Wow, I wonder what that is in numerology. I must I must have a look into that. Yeah. How fast yeah, But I think that
3: after that moment, it was, oh, it was amazing, wasn't it? it we yeah. just had this Yeah, they were the most fun.
1: enjoyable days, weren't they, after that? Because it was like, we just kept looking. I think when we ran down the hill, I, I think I cried most of the way down yeah. the hill. Oh, yeah. I think yeah, all true. three of us yeah. did. <laughs> but, it is like, it was yeah. just... It was the most overwhelming experience of my whole life that day, that moment. We'd uh, been speaking about these kind of things, haven't we, like
2: coincidences and things? Yeah, what was fate, what's coincidence?
3: Yeah. And then this happened. Yeah.
2: And I think you're right, Dan, I think we all were probably in tears as we ran away from there, kind of (laughs) separately. I think I went first. I was like, I've just got to go guys. Like <laughs> I, I, I sort of plodded along and I was just, I th- but I think it was a, almost a reality check and a reminder of like, this is why you're doing this. The, the, these people that we've lost are, you know, and were the, the reason really why we were doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that kind of makes it easier to, to push pain down because, you know you you're doing this for a for a bigger reason and a bigger
0: cause, Danny. I'll go back to you. What would you say to someone who's considering running the Camino? Ah
1: god um hmm. it's It's a real tough one, isn't it? Uh, there were so many points where I wanted to give up then towards the end. As it came to an end, I felt this overwhelming feeling of emptiness because it was going to be over. So, if I was going to say to anybody running it, let, let me do it with you. I'd love to. I'd love to do it all over again. <laughs> 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 I, I, I say some, you know, I missed the camaraderie of it. Getting up in the morning. Do you know what? the 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 most painful part was the before the start and the end of each day. Because when you're on that path, it's just, it takes everything away. Like my favourite two pictures that I took, three pictures that I took, was one of Tom in the morning bandaging himself up. He does not look <laughs> He does not want to carry on. Uh, I'm sure he would have done anything to get out of it. And then... There is another picture of Geary after a day of running. He's lay on his bed. He's got his feet up. He's got ice taped to his swollen ankles. And at that particular point, I thought he would do anything to get out of this. But then there's a picture that I took on the path. We've just got to the top of a hill. The sunrise is coming up. And it's a picture of these two taking a selfie with the sunrise in the background. And it's just a beautiful picture that says, you know, once you're out on that path and you're running it, the pain goes away almost. It's the before and after each day starts and finishes that's the killer when you when you stop.
0: Tom, tell us about arriving in Santiago de Compostela.
3: Well, I think it is very exciting. <laughs> Uh, it, I think, we, I think for myself, I think getting to day ten or eleven—that's when we kind of I felt like we we were going to get there and achieve it. But getting into, I think we all had our own things, didn't we? Really? But, mm. I don't know, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite it, emotional. One, not yeah.
2: like it was quite emotional seeing the cathedral, and um, it didn't really sink in, like. Until you know, we ran into the square, we all put our hands on the, the cathedral wall, and we sort of stepped back and sat down all the way down and collapsed onto the floor in front of the cathedral. It didn't really sink in that we'd actually done it and finished it and achieved, you know, an amazing challenge. I don't think that really sunk in for a good few days. For me, I don't think it really sunk in until I actually got home. And I went back into work and everyone in the office was like, wow, like what you guys have done is unbelievable. Can't believe you made it. Like, I think, yeah, getting to Santiago was a sense of massive achievement, a little bit of relief of what, like that we'd actually made it. Mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, amazing to, to come into the town and see the cathedral and, you know, just to, to see all the other pilgrims get in there as well and, you know, the place is buzzing. Um, yeah. And then, you know, a very well-earned frosty beer for, for me and Tom. And
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Now I'm going to ask, to finish up the interview, I'm going to ask each of you for a word, one word that sums up your experience um, and why. Okay. So, Danny, let's start with you. What's one word you'd used to describe the experience and why? Beautiful.
1: Surrounded by beauty. It's the beauty that gets you through it as well.
0: Tom? I'd say joyful. And why?
3: It was all smiles. There's
2: lots of pain, but it's all, it's great. (laughs) For me, I'd say challenging. And that's because that goes both ways. It's, Challenging in, can be a you know it, it's a it's a not a negative but it's a you know a, a difficult difficulty of the challenge that it, it took to complete it. But also on the flip side of that, that's part of the beauty of the Camino is it is challenging and it's an opportunity for you to to push yourself to push your body to find out where the limits are. Um, you know, so that side of it being challenging, I think, is also one of the most appealing things for me is. You know, I think we all had a little bit of a sense of challenging is is the is the appeal. Like, how far can we go, and how far can we push it?
0: Danny, you reached out to me uh, to do the interview and 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 to have a chat, and I I said immediately, straight away, absolutely, I'd love to talk to you. Do you know how much you raised? Uh, as of today, without gift aid. Uh,
1: we are, I think, at thirteen thousand eight hundred and three pounds. Goodness. Goodness! So if you take, yeah, so if you put the gift date on that, we're close to close to sixteen thousand pounds, aren't we, Michael?
2: We're we're actually we on on just giving, yeah. We we had around that, but we also were pretty lucky to receive quite a few offline donations. Um. So in total, we've got just over twenty thousand, and I'm just waiting on another donation which is roughly about 2000 so if that comes in in the next week or so we'll have actually raised over 22000 pounds
0: wow well what an extraordinary story it's a it's a unique story three friends who decided to take on an amazing challenge to to run alongside one another. And I can imagine it wasn't easy by any stretch of the imagination. It was incredibly difficult, in fact. But a pilgrimage of an entirely different form. And I've spoken to literally almost 300 people here. Um, You're the first that I've spoken to who has run the Camino. It's a unique story. I... Really appreciate, Danny, you reaching out to join us on the podcast, but I'm so pleased and so proud to have had the opportunity to talk to you and to tell your story. Congratulations, Danny and Michael and Tom. Um, Congratulations on what you've been able to achieve. And I hope there's plenty more journeys of discovery and philanthropy along the way. Buen comino, gentlemen. Camino, thank you, Dan. Dan. thank you, thank you for talking
1: to us. I'm, uh, my girlfriend's officially banned me from talking about it, so this has been nice to talk, talk about it again with you all.
0: How <laughs> lovely! Thanks, <laughs> fellows. Um, congratulations, and I hope our paths cross soon. Thanks, Dan. Cheers, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Camino. My guests this week, Danny Nichols and Michael Geary and Tom Pilling, who ran the Camino from Saint Jean-Pierre de Port to Santiago de Compostela in 14 days. I began by saying we almost owe it to ourselves to make the most of the opportunities presented by pilgrimage, whether you were running or walking. If it is some sort of malaise that led you to the Camino, why not take the most of the chance for change? The former U.S. President John F. Kennedy said, when written in Chinese, the word crisis is comprised of two characters. One represents danger, the other represents opportunity. So make the most of all your opportunities. Our thoughts especially to our family and friends in Spain and France in the wake of the heat wave and wildfires. We're thinking of you and praying for you and a special thank you to joe and daniel who signed up as patreon sponsors this week you can sponsor me too keep the podcast alive via patreon.com forward slash dan mullins thanks for your company as always i'm off for a run (laughs) until next week buen camino